Splendid Table is brought to you by all the chickens at Locally Laid Egg Company. Producing high-quality, delicious eggs for over a decade, Locally Laid prioritizes good lives for their hens. Locally Laid Egg Company also partners with rural farmers to keep agriculture clucking along in Minnesota. Locally sourced, locally sold, that's Locally Laid. You can learn more about visiting the flock at the farm's Airbnb at LocallyLaid.com. Hey, it's Francis. You know, if you're a bricklayer, you probably don't go home after work looking to put up a new wall. So why do people think chefs go home and make breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day? Because they really don't. Well, unless you're my friend Gavin Kaysen. He's kind of built different. Check out this long, delicious conversation we had last year about home cooking. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So there's an old joke among restaurant cooks about cooking at home. The first step of every recipe is to get your shoes out of the oven. I guess that's a joke really about the kind of closet space that line cooks usually have at home, but obviously it is a testament to how seldom they really make food at home. And for the chefs who do, you know, so often it's just miniaturizing what they do in the restaurant. You know, I had a chef friend tell me that he lost his job in the pandemic and when he was trying to make dinner at home, his wife walked in horrified to see him basting four spears of asparagus with a half a pound of butter. But the chef Gavin Kaysen is one of the rare chefs I know who truly, authentically loves home cooking. I don't just mean cooking at home. I mean, he loves the kind of cooking that doesn't require two prep cooks to get you set up and two more dishwashers to get your life back together afterwards. And I guess that shouldn't have come as a real shock because one thing I know about Gavin is how much family and the idea of home matter to him. So he was like all-world chef Danielle Boulou's star protege in New York, but instead of following the expected path of opening a fine dining temple, he and his family decided to go back home to Minneapolis where his kids could be closer to their relatives and where he could serve his grandmother's pot roast to a community who would get it. He's the chef owner of Spoon and Stable, Demi, Belcour Bakery, and Mara in the Twin Cities, and he's the author of a new cookbook called, no surprise, At Home. And he joined me for an event for the Splendid Table Co-op, who are some of our biggest supporters, to talk about why home cooking is so important to him. So, hey, Chef. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, I have always been such a fan of your food. When you were here in New York, like whether you were doing like fried chicken or, you know, tweezer, meticulous fine dining, your food was always just so consistent and excellent. And consistency, I think, is really the mark of excellence. Um, and I'd noticed like I've had a chance to dine at Spoon and Stable and at Demi coming um, uh, to Minneapolis and You've only grown, even like from your time in New York. But <laughs> just a couple minutes ago, I, out of curiosity, took a look at my weather app on my phone, and it's yeah. going to be negative seventeen degrees in Minneapolis tonight. So the question uh, I have for you is, why did you sign up for that? <laughs> like you could you have know, opened fun- restaurants literally any in the world. I know, and it's funny you say that because <laughs> I was in Sarasota, Florida, the other day. And it was 82 degrees and I landed in Minneapolis and it was negative 12. And I had to remind myself as we were landing over and over again, I chose this. You chose this. You chose this. Like, it's okay. Uh, You know, I I grew up in Minnesota. My family moved there when I was seven years old. And so that was, that was, that had always been home to me. I I truthfully never imagined that I would have moved back to Minnesota, not Mm. for any sort of snide reason, but just because I just didn't think about um, the the culinary landscape there. I mean, I was so busy doing what I was doing, and there I was in New York City working for Danielle Balud and and, and, really rubbing shoulders. Yeah, and, and, and just not only just an incredible chef, but an incredible hospitalitarian. I mean, I really... I got I got the PhD of of this business from him mm. and and I learned so much and I continue to learn so much from him. I mean that's that's the thing that I that I'm so grateful for. I I, I haven't worked for him for 8 years but I still feel like I'm on his payroll um, cuz he still calls me and says, "Hey, what's going on?" and checks in and it's like, you know, I still get nervous when he calls like, "What did I do?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yes, chef. Yes, chef. I mean, uh, yeah. hi, hello. Yeah, exactly. But I was I, you know, I really 
I found the space that is now Spoon and Stable. I fell in love with the space. My wife and I had two young children at the time. They were three and five. They're now 13 and 11. Um, and, and having them grow up near family was important to the two of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife is from Sweden, just south of Stockholm. Uh, so we didn't have her family in town and, and my family was relatively close in comparison. And once I found the spoon and stable space, I was kind of hooked. Yeah. But so it's, it was family. It was a family choice. It was a lifestyle choice. Yeah. But like in terms of your food, in terms of the cuisine, in terms of, you know, the way you want to serve guests, what was it about that place or what, what is it about that place? You know, it's interesting because the way that the food has evolved in our community in the last eight years has been really inspiring. Mm. Um, you know, you see people like Ann Kim growing into her own. That's not just Pizzeria Lola anymore. Yeah. And Sean Sherman at Awamni and growing into what he's doing. And, you know, Christina Nugent at Hi Hi and her restaurants. And the list kind of goes on and on. But you know what's what I what I don't want to forget is that the D'Amico family was was the family that really started sort of the restaurant boom thirty years ago in the Twin Cities. I mean, these are two brothers that moved from Cleveland to Minneapolis and opened up a bunch of restaurants in Minneapolis and still have catering companies there and and small little bakeries and such. And had they not opened, they wouldn't have spawned all of this talent throughout the Twin Cities that have now spawned another generation of talent. So you know. I think sometimes when you take a step back from where you are raised and you explore the world and then you look back on it, it somehow looks a lot brighter than when you left it. Mm. And and the food that we create at Spoon and Stable, the food that we create at Demi, the 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 baked goods at the bakery, you know, a lot of it comes from from yes, where I've traveled, where I've lived, where I've worked, but there's there's a a definition of the food that is very local in terms of what we're able to use with our flours which is very, you know, the mill city is, it's, it's all about our flour. Um, you know, and, and what are the ingredients and what, what I continuously fall in love with in in that community is that I can be in the middle of Minneapolis working in the kitchen and I stick my arm out and 20 minutes later I'm in a farm. And there's something really special about being able to just get that quickly connected to what is on your plate, what is in your refrigerator, what's on your cutting board and what is going to be served to a guest that night. Yeah. I love that. So obviously, like so many chefs, you're really you know, driven by the ingredients and the farmers and the and just like the natural innate beauty of a, a well-grown, well-harvested, responsibly harvested local ingredient. But you know, the chefs you named before, Ann Kim, Sean Sherman, Christina Wayne, you know, they're all they're also cooking extremely different styles of food. Sean Sherman, yeah. really, um, you know, his vision of what indigenous food um, is or could be. And Ann Kim, you know, making pizza, growing you know, famous as a pizza chef, but really bringing her Korean American um, background to to what she does. And Christina Wynn, you know, with her Vietnamese flavors. And um, so it's 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 interesting because to hear you talk about it without naming it as such, you're you're talking both about like what comes from the earth, like the mm-hmm. very rich earth of Minnesota, but also like the diversity of these different chefs and communities and inspiration. So it's like the world is present with you as well. Yeah. And I, th- and I think what's been really fun to watch is to watch not only the community of chefs wrap themselves around what it is that they want to, what they want to serve to the guests, but more importantly, the guests are excited to come and taste the food. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't have a business if we don't have people in the chairs. <laughs> so you know, we can be as good as we want to be. We can be as consistent as we are. We can love the farmers as much as we want. But, you know, if you don't have butts and seats, you're not talking to anybody about what you're doing. And, and you know, that there there's a sense of pride when it comes to what it is that you're able to cook and serve. Um, and, I, and I think that that's really been special to see grow in at least the eight years that I've been here. Yeah. Um, it's been really fun to watch and observe. Right on. But we're also here to talk about your book at home, mm-hmm. which um, it's funny you said that. I mean, obviously you don't have a business if you don't have guests coming in the restaurant. And but the the sort of origin story, like the superhero origin story of this book, right, started with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The restaurants were closed. You didn't have guests to serve, and you started um, just conducting Zoom cooking classes, right? Yeah. And and <laughs> you loved how people were so into cooking your food with you and. So you figured, hey, it's cookbook time. 
And when we were talking yesterday, you said something really interesting, and that was that a bookseller said about this book, quote, most, most chef home cooking books are still chef books, but that your book is an exception. What do you think that means? Yeah, you know, that the whole start and the origin of that, it really, I credit, there, there was a, a woman named Kylie Portel who was on my team, and she really sort of pushed me to do uh, what was called GK at Home, and it was these online cooking courses, as you described. You know, Francis, the first class we ever did was a paella class, and I forgot ingredients to put in the paella, and somebody was, like, calling me out on Zoom, and I'm like, listen, leave me alone, you know, you're just at home cooking, like... You know, we're not following the, I mean, yes, we're following the recipe, but leave me alone. <laughs> and that we had like 150 people on that Zoom Zoom class, uh-huh. which I was blown away that 150 people cared that much to, to tune at six o'clock and watch us cook. Well, then our next class, we had almost a thousand people oh, on man. that next class. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And what was remarkable to me is that we saw what we were doing was building a community. And regardless of if you have a restaurant that people can come into or not, that's that's what you're doing. If you have a restaurant, you're doing that with and for the community. Mm-hmm. And and you bring people together to your table. And so when we when when we took a when we took a look back at all of the recipes we had produced for the show and for the online classes, we had upwards to 80 recipes. And so we needed, you know, 30, 40, 50 more recipes to make it a quote unquote, you know, standard cookbook of 120 recipes. Sure. And Kylie and my other colleague, Aaron, followed me around the kitchen as we were testing these recipes out with their computer. And I would say, okay, now add some salt. It said, but how much salt? I said, just a pinch of salt. I don't know. And they're like, yeah, but how much salt? And so we would go through this like painstaking recipe testing. But then what what really made it the cookbook to me that is for the, the consumer at home to use is that we tested this on, on 80 different classes. So we were getting live questions from the mm. guest of saying like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said add two tablespoons of flour. When do I add that? Okay, that's a really good point. Maybe we weren't clear in our instructions to you. Let's go back and fix that for the book because we didn't do it for you in the class tonight. Because I had the pleasure and and the and and, you know, I was lucky enough to just say, oh, no, no, sorry, we made a mistake. It's this. <laughs> well, you can't do that in a cookbook yeah. because they bought the book. So, <laughs> and their you know, dinner's gonna, ruined and they're mad. Yeah, their dinner's – yeah, exactly. I mean, we had this one – we were doing this one class. We were doing coca van and we were making spetzel and you were supposed to take two cups of flour for the spetzel and two tablespoons of flour for the roux, to, for the sauce, for the coca van. For like the wine sauce I, for the chicken. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And the guest says – Oh, you know, chef, what if you put all two cups plus two tablespoons of flour into the wine sauce to thicken it? And I like deadpan the camera. I'm like, just throw it in the trash. There's <laughs> no, like, there's nothing you can do at this point. But that's that to me is kind of how we got the book uh, to where it was. And that was a really amazing compliment to hear that, that the book has done that for people. We'll be back with more with Chef Gavin Kaysen, author of At Home. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits, the rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, 
seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending time today with the Twin Cities culinary star Gavin Kaysen, who is the rare chef who really loves home cooking. His debut cookbook is called At Home. Let's get back to it with him. You know, so I work on cookbooks uh, a lot. And, you know, we do very often say to our authors, particularly if they are chefs, I think this recipe is a little bit chefy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or is this too chefy? Um, and in some cases, you know, that's exactly what you want. If this is like, oh, the 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 great book of whatever great chef, the recipe is exactly as intended, you know, da 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 da, and like oh, that's like a keepsake of the restaurant. But most people at home aren't really cooking that way. And if they're buying that kind of book, maybe it's more as a souvenir from the time they went, or they've heard great things, or they love the photos, or whatever, whatever, whatever. But they're not necessarily meant to, you know, get dinner on someone's table on a Saturday night, or let alone a Tuesday night. Yeah. So yeah, and we've seen we've seen people, you know, take this book and make these recipes every day and send us photos. Yeah. But so how did you think about that? Like, we actually had a, a question from a listener. When a chef is writing a cookbook, what's the biggest difference for a home cook that the chef has to factor in? You know, I, I, I think I was lucky in that I have two children who are very opinionated about what I cook. <laughs> and so I'm factoring in them. And I'm also factoring in what every other parent is probably factoring in at home or person who's cooking at home, which is you don't have the luxury of time. You don't have the luxury of prep cooks. You don't have the luxury of a dishwasher doing your dishes and cleaning up after every move. And so we really try to like break down things for you and say like, look, here's how I do it. Okay. I, I prep all of my food and I put it in little tiny containers and they're called mise en place containers. And I know that's a very chefy thing, but I'm putting it in like, glass bowls that you and I have at home and they don't match and it doesn't look perfect. And what it's going to do is it's going to make the cooking process faster, easier, and less stressful. And then when that's cooking, I can turn around and I can put it in my dishwasher and I don't have to worry about doing dishes later. So we really, I mean, honestly, 90 plus percent of the recipes that are in the book, I genuinely cook that food at home for my family. Yeah. And, and I've been able to factor in oh, you know what? I don't have the right salt because that happens when you're at home. Oh my God, I don't have enough butter. Oh, I forgot to get that vinegar. Okay, what do I do if I don't have the vinegar that I normally use for this recipe? Yeah, yeah. What's my what's my hack? And then once I know that hack, it's in the book. Here's a hack. This is what you can do. Or, oh, you broke this sauce. Let's fix it. No problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, right? Because it's one of these things where when you're a chef and you're cooking in the restaurant, I mentioned before consistency, right? So consistency is everything. You don't, you never want yeah. a guest to come in on Monday, have this great dish, tell their friends about it. They come in the next Saturday and it's either different or, you know, it, it's just doesn't, it's just not as good as when, you know, as, as when Jane came in and started raving about it. So yeah. and consistency means you get the same ingredients. You make sure the vinegar is the same. You make sure all that stuff is, is locked in tight when you're home cooking, it's kind of a different vibe. It is. You know, like, it's a very different vibe. You, you don't need that. And so one thing that I think is, um, is sometimes lost in translation when chefs are talking to home cooks um, is sort of exactly what you're talking about. You don't have that vinegar. It's okay. Here's mm-hmm. what I would do. I got, I got a lemon. I got a different kind of vinegar. That kind of vinegar is maybe a little more sharp, right? Like you maybe add a little bit of sugar to it to like balance it out. Um, but let me ask you this, but in terms of, not just in terms of like technique um, or the how-to or, you know, what a chef's habits are, but in terms of like the emotional feeling you have or creativity or however you describe it, what is the difference for you as a home cook versus you as a cook in your restaurant? I think the biggest difference is that as a cook at the restaurant, I have to think to myself, how can we make sure that the cooks make this consistently for 200 people a night? Because the cooks are cooking the food. I'm not cooking every dish that goes out in my restaurant, right? As as crazy as that might seem to people. (laughs) We are not back there, right? We are not back there making every, every plate of food. But at home, 
as you said, I mean, there's, there's, there's a little bit more of a relaxation to it. You know, I cook at home a lot. And the reason I cook at home is because it gives me a lot of peace. Hmm. Um, you know, when we, even when, even when my family and I go on vacation, we, we are very intentional about making sure that we rent a house versus stay in a hotel because by day three, I want to be cooking. Hmm. And, and it's, it's not because I'm bored. It's not because I'm upset. It's because nourishing my family is really important to me. And I, and I take a lot of pride in, in, in having time to sit down with them and share with them what I love so deeply, which is to cook and to serve people. And I think I've learned over time, especially watching my kids grow up, is that, you know, that my kids have a front row seat of seeing their dad do something that he loves every single day, day mm. in and day out, whether I'm at the restaurants or whether I'm at home, I meet it with the same amount of passion and love. It's just that the restaurants, it's very different because it has to be systematic. There has to be consistency in the in, in discipline and focus and drive, and it's so different. But when you're at the when you're at your house, it's like, you know, we had a plan for dinner tonight, but we went to the farmer's market and our plan changed. And so now we're gonna make this instead. Um and and it's just it's really special to be able to have that time where I can just for a couple of hours be in my own kitchen with no time regiment, no routine of, you know, you need, service starts at five, you got pre-shift at four, you know, all these meetings, et cetera. I just get to cook. Yeah. You have uh, some favorite recipes in the book. And you had mentioned to me that speaking of your kids, one you make with them a lot is the roast chicken with mm -hmm. uh, sweet potato hash. Tell us about it. Yeah. So this is, this is a fun, I love this dish. I love to do the, the, the technique of spatchcocking when you take out the back part of the bone and you split the bird so it lays flat. It's the most, for me, it's the most consistent way to cook the chicken. Uh, the breast is cooked perfectly when the legs are cooked. It's easy to see and you can get the skin nice and crispy. So we put a, a like a North African spice rub on the bird and we let it marinate. And then we, we bake, you know, we, we roast it in the oven. Sweet potato hash. We just basically make hash browns out of sweet potatoes and a little bit of Idaho potato. Mm -hmm. or Yukon gold, whatever, uh, and charred broccolini or broccoli rob uh, with slivered, slivered garlic, lemon zest, and lemon juice. And I'll <laughs> talk about consistency. I remember one time I made this for my family on a Sunday, and then I made the exact same chicken the following Sunday, and Julius, my 11-year-old, looks at me and he says, you know, Dad, I mean, last week was probably like an 8.2 out of 10. This week's like <laughs> 7.9. I'm like, what? <laughs> what's what's above an 8.2 for you? Because that was an amazing chicken we just had, number one. Number two, it was the same recipe. <laughs> you know, and he's like, well, you know, and so there is some humility in seeing your 11-year-old or 13-year-old judge your food so quickly. Um, <laughs> Are you but it's, easy it's, to feed? My my 13-year-old is very easy to feed. He has, an he has a really good palate. My 11-year-old's a lot harder to feed. He just seems to be a little bit more particular about what he likes. He's also very routine-based in what he eats, and so there's just not a lot of, like, let me venture out. But, you know, it's funny. So my wife and I have a third son who's who's only eight months old now. And, Congratulations. Which is, I know, it's crazy. I, as I always joke, I re-signed my lease, you know. Um <laughs> But my, we, we were talking about, we were talking about baby food the other day because our baby like will not eat pear puree or anything like that. Like he just spits it out. And then I'm making some marinara sauce for my other two kids the other day. And I give him a little spoon of the marinara sauce and he like smiles ear to ear. He loves it. Hmm. And I realized when, when Emil, our oldest son was a He's baby, head start. we used to put like Parmesan cheese in his baby food to like blend it. Cause he loves salt. Uh -huh. And so we just add like a little bit of Parmesan cheese for salt. So I think our third son is a salt baby too. I think that's what it is. <laughs> right on. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel the, I, I thought you were really happy to eat yesterday. Why not today? Oh I definitely my God. feel it's that. Like, kills me. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get back to spatchcocking for a second for those who don't know. Um, so the technique of spatchcocking is, so, you know, you have the, you have the bird mm -hmm. and what you do is you actually just, you, you follow, you find the backbone of the bird That's right. and you just basically cut it out. Like you cut down one side of it, cut down the other side of it and you take the whole thing out. And then when that's gone, you like can open it up like a book and you yep. kind of flatten it out. And so instead of cooking a cylinder, you're basically now cooking like a, 
like a, a more flat object, which lets it cook more even. Yeah, and then once you once you take the backbone out and flip it over, you just put a little like you just cut the breastplate just a little bit, and then that opens the bird completely. And then yeah, you just sort of lay it flat. Um, I typically cook mine at four twenty five or four fifty, but four twenty five for forty five minutes, and then I let it rest for about fifteen to eighteen minutes. Yeah, and it's 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 really incredible. Like I love a chicken. But it's like, oh, you're, it's really hard to cook something that is shaped kind of like a football. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. one part is thicker, the other part is thinner. And then, oh, when you flatten it out, you actually remove a lot of that variance. And the even cook really comes that way. Yeah, and you don't really have to go through the whole process of like, okay, let me show you how to trust this bird. And now let's go get butcher twine. And, you know, we talked about things like that for the cookbook as well. And it's like, I mean, I'm a professional chef and I don't, I don't, have butcher twine at the regular at my house either you know so it's like do i really expect somebody to go out and buy butcher twine and say come back and then trust their chicken and then marinate it and roast it i mean i love it and i do it sometimes as well but if if you were to say to me hey we need dinner at 6 30 tonight and the kids have baseball and hockey and you can run home and throw the chicken in the oven at x amount of t- it's like i'll run home and spatchcock the chicken marinate it pop it in the oven dinner's ready in 60 minutes i'm out Right on. Dinner's ready. I'm out. This is this is this is really the home cook uh, the home cook lifestyle. Dinner's That's ready, it. I'm out. <laughs> All right. So we had a whole bunch of listeners um, send in questions for you. I'd love to take some with you. Ready? Yeah. All right. Well, this is uh, this is one from both Kathy and Fran. So two people asked this question, and it's very simple. Why can't I make brown butter? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I should never answer a question with a question, but the question I would have is, do you walk away when the butter is browning? Hmm, well, I guess it's good... interesting. Okay, so so let's get – I mean, obviously, we can't know why Kathy and Fran can't make brown sure. butter. But what is it with brown butter? Chefs love brown butter. Because it's it's it just gives a different flavor, you know? Mm. I mean, it, it gives it this sort of like – it, it gives butter sort of this hazelnut flavor to it, and it and it's really delicious. I mean, brown. I, I got into a big debate on a local radio show in Minneapolis about brown butter and and rice krispie bars. I mean, it's a big deal. Brown butter rice krispie bars. I'm I'm not a brown butter rice krispie bar person, but it is delicious. You know, the easiest way to do brown butter, in which the way that we do it for the restaurants, which is probably not. Well, I know it is not how they teach you in culinary school, but. I put all the butter in the pot and, and I sort of dice the butter up very yeah. similar in large dice. I put it in the pot and then I turn the pot on high. And once the butter starts to boil, then I turn it off and you just see the milk salads drop to the bottom and, and slowly start to burn and caramelize. The trick is then taking it off fast enough and, and pouring it through a, a chinois or a or a cheesecloth or, or a coffee filter. I mean, mm-hmm. I would have a coffee filter at home. I'm not... I don't have a stash of cheesecloth at home. So, uh, but yeah, I love brown butter. So the idea of it is you cook the butter until it separates and you get the little, Mm -hmm. you know, white, the little white things at the bottom of the butter after you melt it is is actually milk solids, right? And that's protein and sugars. And you're basically caramelizing those, but trying not to burn them. And then you strain those things out. So what's left is just the melted butter infused with that flavor. That's right. And what do you do with what do you do with your brown butter? Like you said, you could you could substitute it for butter and rice krispies treats. What are the fun ways to use it? I mean, if you were to make like a veal cutlet and you were to sear a veal cutlet in the pan, and then you know at the end after the after the veal is seared or the chicken or whatever it is that you're cooking in the pan, you take that out. You add some brown butter, add some shallots, capers, a little bit of lemon zest, lemon juice. And now you have a pan sauce, a very mm. simple pan sauce. We actually have a recipe in the book uh, that does that. Um, and we do it with pork. As, as a matter of fact, we take pork loin and, and we, we, we pound the pork loin down to a little cutlet and then sear that in the pan uh, and make a brown butter caper sauce. So it makes very simple sauces. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can make a very delicious vinaigrette out of brown butter as well. Oh, cool. So instead of using, instead of using just an olive oil or a neutral oil, you would mm-hmm. use a percentage of brown butter, probably half brown butter, and okay. then some sort of like a 
in that case, I would probably use like an avocado oil, something that's very neutral, so you don't get any of the bitterness of an of an olive oil. Okay. But that would be a delicious vinaigrette. I mean, imagine a brown butter vinaigrette with, say, like a poached lobster salad. I mean, that's delicious. <laughs> Avocado, radishes. Just like we have lying at home, the leftover yeah. poached lobster salad. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't have Come poached on. lobster at home? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> tuna salad? Brown butter tuna salad? Does that sound okay? That sounds good. The tuna has to be fresh. Okay, you can take it out of the can. I'll forgive you once. <laughs> I love that. Okay, but but how would you keep... Okay, so... I always have a question about um, vinaigrettes using butter because butter wants to solidify when it's not mm-hmm. warm. So does it get hard? Does it get goopy? Or how, how do no, you? No, I mean it, it. It'll most likely solidify, and that's okay. I mean, when when you go then to knead the vinaigrette again, you know what I'll do is I'll put it in the microwave for like ten seconds mm. to just sort of melt it, and then I I always keep my vinaigrettes in a mason jar. Okay. And then I'll take the the lid off. I'll add maybe like a teaspoon of water and then I'll shake it back up in the mason jar and the vinaigrette's been saved. Oh, I mean, cool. water basically saves everything when it comes to a broken sauce or vinaigrette in a kitchen. Water is magic. That's a great tip. Yeah. All right. Let's go to... Um... We have so many questions like, I keep screwing this up. Let, let's go to a more <laughs> positive one. Um this is from Jackie. Are there prepared products that are okay to use versus doing it yourself? Garlic paste, prepared marinara, etc. So what prepared products, convenience products do you like? Oh yeah, I think there is for sure. I mean, for example, like a sofrito. So if you're making paella at home or something like that and you need a sofrito, I mean, sofrito is typically onions and garlic some sort of mirepoix and then it's cooked down Mm -hmm. and then you cook it with tomatoes and then you have to puree it. It's a process. It's like a long process. And I I wouldn't wish that on anybody to have to make that at home. (laughs) I mean, I buy, I buy jarred sofrito all the time. Really? Um, You can name names. Like are there brands that you, that you go for? Uh, You know, I don't, I don't, it starts with an M I'd have to look, but it's, we, we buy it from a local store near our house and, um, it's delicious, but I think I think there are, are products like that where it's not worth making it on your own. You know, there are certain curry pastes that you can buy that that are just as good as if you were to make your own curry. I mean, we have a curry recipe in the book, but it's you know it's fourteen ingredients. I mean, you have to have lime, you have to have lime leaves, you have to have like all of these specific ingredients, which is great, but it's gonna it's gonna take you two hours to shop for it. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a curry paste that you can buy that's that's simple. Uh, and delicious, you know, and I think that that's worth it. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I mean, what you're talking about too are, are kind of flavor based things. Mm-hmm. Like the sofrito is the is the first layer of the flavor base. The curry paste is, you know, the first and probably the main, but like it's the layer of the flavor base. And so it's like you're going to add other ingredients to it. You're going to add fresh ingredients to it. You're going to add coconut milk, or you're going to add in the sofrito. You're going to add stock, and you're going to add rice, and you know. So it's not the only flavor. I think it's mm-hmm. kind of, I think it's kind of what you're getting at too, right? Like stuff that you're going to continue to cook and add fresh ingredients to, and that flavor will become part of the mix, and you don't have to rely on it as being, oh, I opened a jar and whatever they put in the jar is going to be my main flavor at dinner. Do you do preserved lemons in your house all the time? Absolutely not. But right. I like so where you're I mean, going with and, this. and I don't either. But every once in a while, I'll do it. But I will buy a jar of preserved lemons because there are some really, really delicious jarred preserved lemons that they do an amazing job with. You buy that, you keep it in your fridge. To your point, now you have another layer of flavor that you can add a preserved lemon to because you're going to sear a piece of fish for dinner tonight. Well, you have a jar of piquillo peppers in your fridge. You have a jar of preserved lemons and you have olives. You also have shallots. Okay, so now you take chopped shallots, chopped olives, chopped preserved lemon, chopped piquillo peppers, a bit of olive oil, and maybe some lemon juice or sherry vinegar, whatever you have. And that's like Mix it together, you put relish. it on the fish, it's done. You have a relish. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, preserved lemons are so good, too. They're like... So good. Lemons that have been salted, and then they, like, they release their own juice. They kind of like brine and pickle in their own juice, and they're still tart, but they're kind of like darker and mustier and salty and it's so good they just they add a depth of flavor whether you're eating something with fish or i mean they stand up to any any meat protein you'll ever eat they'll stand up to it coming up more with gavin Kaysen, author of at home 
I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is a show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending the hour today with our friend, the chef Gavin Kaysen, owner of Spoon and Stable and Demi in Minneapolis. So we recorded in front of a Zoom audience of Splendid Table Co-op members. Thanks, everyone. And he took some of their cooking questions. Let's go back to it with them. We have a question from Hillary. I'd like to know an easy, delicious approach to take frozen salmon fillets out of the freezer and get them onto my dinner table. So if you have salmon fillets that are frozen, uh, you know, the ideal way of defrosting them is you figure you'll have them for dinner tomorrow or the next day, you take them out of the freezer, put them in the fridge, and then just let them slowly defrost. Uh, If your salmon fillets are in fact frozen and you have to have dinner on the table in 20, 30 minutes or whatever, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, you would have to run the salmon fillet keep it in the bag or the pouch or whatever it's, you know, sealed in, mm-hmm. you know, run it under cold water. Um, that will thaw out the fish pretty quickly. I mean, salmon, thankfully, is a, is a very fatty fish. Mm. And so that fat, that fat will melt, will break down rather fast when you're, when you're trying to thaw it with the water. I'll give a plug to a friend of mine who you know, Lior, who has that shop in New York City, mm. La Boite des Apices, which is a great shop, but always a bad name because it's all in French and harder to say. <laughs> But he has a great, he has a lot of great spice blends. And you talk about something that you want to get onto your dinner table quickly. We have a recipe in our book that has one of his spice blends with salmon. We take out the salmon filet. We 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 pat it down as dry as we can. We paint the salmon filet with a bit of Dijon mustard. We put some of his spice blend on there. And we just roast it in the oven. Very low heat for like 18 minutes and it comes out and it's perfectly cooked and it's absolutely delicious. If we don't you have know. Lior spice blends, what, what, what kind of, if you're sort of freestyling a, a spice mix on, on that, on the mustard painted salmon, what would you do? Yeah. So I would probably use like a sweet paprika, garlic, garlic powder, onion powder, fennel seeds. I'd mix all of that together inside of the, maybe like a mortar and pestle or something that, that just sort of pushes it all through mm-hmm. and then, and then push that onto my, onto my mm. fish. Yeah. And when you say it roasted at a low heat, so you're not trying to get a crispy skin. No, no. In fact, I, I love crispy skin on salmon, but in, when you're, when you're cooking something that's going from frozen to thaw to on the table within an hour, you're better off cooking it at a lower heat versus a higher heat because mm-hmm. You've extracted so much of the liquid already out of the salmon that if you cook it at a high heat, it's trying. It doesn't know how to like go back in. So it'll it will frankly the fish will be dry. Oh, uh, you almost want to think to yourself. You almost want to think that you're going to kind of like slowly roast it or slowly poach it. Yeah. Um, and it's delicious. I mean, that's the other way to cook the salmon quickly would be to poach it. Take a pot of water, put in fennel seeds, peppercorn seeds. Maybe you have a whole bulb of fennel. Throw that in. Throw in a couple slices of lemon and a shallot. And slowly poach the salmon. So, like, when you're poaching, I mean, like, almost no bubbling, right? Like, super, yeah. super low. 
and you just mm-hmm. slip salt the salmon and just slip it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would bring it. I would bring it. Eric Repair has, the, I think, the best poaching technique of all time. But basically, you bring the poaching liquid to a high heat, oh. and then you turn it off. You pour the poaching liquid in a shallow pan. Okay. And then you and then you season it, and then you just put the fish. So like the fish is like halfway submerged in the poaching liquid. Okay. And then just put it in the oven at like 325 and just let it cook sort of like poach and roast at the same time. Oh, right It's on. so delicious. And like because it's in the liquid, it won't – it can't get too hot. Yep. Right? Because the liquid's the liquid's going to sort of moderate the temperature. Oh, that's and it won't dry smart. out. And you're not going to get this sort of, you know – you're not going to get a piece of fish that is that is watery. It's just really, really spot on. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Michael. I keep burning garlic and onions when I saute them in oil. What tips can you give me so this doesn't happen? Hmm. I would say the first tip is turn your heat down. Yeah. Because it's probably just too hot. And it sounds to me like he's probably putting in the garlic and the onion maybe at the wrong time. You know, oh, what you do don't remember that. Well, I guess the question is, let's say he's, if he's making, let's say he's making charred broccoli rob and he wants to add garlic and onions. Well, the broccoli rob in your pan is going to take eight to 10 minutes to cook. So you're better off just putting the broccoli rob in your hot, high heat pan first. Mm, okay. Then in the last 30 seconds before you take it off, you throw your onions and your garlic in, give it a squeeze of lemon juice and you have broccoli rob. But it sounds like he's probably putting in, putting it in too early. Yeah, or maybe the pan is too hot. Pan's definitely too hot. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I want to talk about this for a second, too. I was taught, this is one of the sort of lasting lessons I remember learning in culinary school. And that is when a chef, a chef told me, what you put in a dish, you will taste in reverse order. Mm-hmm. And what he meant was, if you're starting, for example, like we're talking about, right? If you're starting a, a, a pan, a sauce, or a, a pasta, or whatever, in a saute pan with oil, onions, and garlic, and then you add in you know, whatever your other flavors are, and then you finish off the dish, when you're tasting it, the onions and garlic are probably not going to be the main flavor you're tasting, right? Right. They're kind of in the background. They're like sweet. They have that like allium flavor, but they're probably not the main, unless it's like a ton of it. But if you squeeze lemon on to that dish right before you serve it, the first thing you'll taste is the lemon. So that, that was the idea, right? The, the last thing you put on is the first thing you'll taste and all the way back down to the end. Like, and then the onion and garlic are just sort of in the background. And I love what you said about the timing of using your onion and garlic. So if you're starting something in the beginning with it, like again, it's a background flavor. But the broccoli, Rob, you said, oh, I'll throw in some minced garlic right at the very end and just cook it for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And we all know that flavor when you're eating, you know, greens with sautéed garlic, and you have that like big punch of garlic, and then the kind of bitter greens after it, and it's just like one of the most you know classic, beautiful, rustic combinations known to you know, known to man. Mm-hmm. But I think being intentional about when you add that garlic, or when you add that lemon, or when you add the you know chopped up olives or whatever. Um, is also such a cool way, not just the ingredients you're using, but when you're adding them to the dish is a way of playing with what flavor you get out of your food. Yeah, and I th- exactly. And I think that there, when you're cooking, you have to understand that not every dish is going to be, not, not every dish is going to follow the same technique. Yeah. You know, you're not going to cook salmon the same way you cook steak. You're not going to always add the onions and garlic in the, the same time in the pan. You know, so you kind of have to take a step back and say, okay, how am I, you know, what's my game plan here? And again, that's why we talk a lot in the book about creating these, you know, having these bowls of like chopped up vegetables ready to go is because when I get you to the stove, I don't want you to be in this like panic mode of like, oh my God, what do I do? I've got to look at the book. I've got to look at the pan. I got to make sure it's like, it's all good. It's just food. We got it. Yeah. You know, add this, cook it. Add that next, cook it, add this next, you know? So, and it, and it, it really is, it really is important to sort of build the flavors and you're sort of teaching people by default, like this is how you build the flavors of cuisine. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Let me get to a question that we actually from our live audience right now. 
this one is specific to you. It's a personal question. What is the most difficult and or happy moment in the kitchen for you? And this is from Rutan. Professional kitchen or, or my home kitchen? Doesn't <laughs> specify. Yeah, okay. Um, I'd say the most difficult, the most difficult um, thing in the professional kitchen is getting everybody sort of on the same page every single night. I mean, we're, we're a show. You know, our curtains open at five. We're we're ready to go, um, and it, it sometimes people have hard days, and so you gotta you gotta get through that with them. The most difficult thing in my home kitchen is you know not stepping on my dog as she's waiting for every crumb to fall <laughs> off my cutting board so she can have her third dinner for the night, um, and and you know trying to get food on the table before the kids have to go to some sports or school event. Um, my happy moments in the kitchen are honestly being in the kitchen. I'm the happiest. Just like the I, process. I, I will, I will always be the happiest in my life when I'm inside of a kitchen. It's everything to me. It's, 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 it's my nirvana. I love it. You know, and it really puts me at peace. It gives me a lot of calm. Um, it's the easiest way for me to create meditation for myself. Oh, that's interesting. Even when we're in the restaurants, Francis, and you know, on any given night between all three restaurants, we could serve a thousand people. Mm-hmm. those are the, the the time in which we're doing that that's probably when i'm at my most calm <laughs> is when i know that we've got thousands of people to cook for um it's when when we're not doing that and i'm in meetings and whatever it's like that's great but it's not it's what what gives me the peace is when i can see the guest and i can talk to the guest and see their reaction to the food and and watch them have a good time yeah let me ask this though I mean, you, how do I put this? Part of it is competitiveness for some people. Part of it is just like drive. Part of it is, you know, a desire to, um, you know, strive for perfection. You know, one of the, one of the great truisms of, of cooking or at least cooking professionally is, you know, perfection doesn't exist. There's only the chase of perfection, right? Mm-hmm. But that's what drives people, right? They really want to get something perfect just once and they know they'll never do it. So you just kind of keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And I think for a lot of people, that is also commensurate with the drive to open successful restaurants and have successful businesses. You know, it, it, that's just like the drive for success, right? Mm-hmm. How do you sort of square those two things? Like the the happiness you talk about in cooking with the notion that, I always have to be better. And if I'm not better today, then I've failed. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, part of it is compartmentalizing what it is that you're reflecting upon. Mm. We have a company, we have a company that, that cooks for professional athletes in Minnesota. And we're lucky enough to cook for the Minnesota wild, the Timberwolves and the Lynx, So all our pro basketball and, and hockey teams. Yeah. What's been really interesting the last five, six years of cooking for these people is watching them compartmentalize their life that's at home and beyond. And then mm. when they're at the rink or they're, at, or they're on the court. I know a lot of these athletes personally, and they're close friends of mine. And so I know what their life is like personally and their kids and wives, et cetera. And then I watch them play on the ice or the court. And I'm always sort of enamored by the way that they can sort of just be there and be super present at what it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've, what I've learned is that why cooking makes me so happy is because it's the only time in my day where I genuinely allow myself to be 100% present in that moment. Mm. And when I get out of cooking, I absolutely think on the drive home, okay, how can we be better tomorrow? But the better, the better to me is not like I actually ask myself, how can I be better for tomorrow mm. for my team? What does that look like? You know, I, I, I take a great sense of pride and responsibility know that knowing how many employees work for us, which is over 170 employees, mm-hmm. that, you know, they are relying on us to be better. They're relying on us to be fiscally responsible. They're relying on us to be a consistent, busy restaurant. So then, then that way they can plan for their lives as well. Yeah. And so I have to compartmentalize that. And I have to know that where my happiness is in the kitchen drives me to be better everywhere else. And, and 
it all stems from me when I'm in the kitchen. I'm happy yeah. there. I can push everything else forward. Yeah. And I think about, you know, what does that mean for a home cook, for instance, who isn't cooking with the same motivations and isn't, you know, thinking about those same things when they're cooking. And, you know, we talk about happiness while we're cooking and, and the joy of cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for a lot of people, cooking can be really frustrating, right? Yeah. It can be really annoying. Right? Hey, I burned that garlic. Now I'm really mad at myself. I got to throw the whole thing out or I'm going to eat this, you know, dinner that tastes terrible or, you know, and, and, and when things come easy to someone like you, you know, for someone else, if it's not coming easy, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a moment of frustration. But I think that can be a way of addressing that too, right? Mm-hmm. The presentness, and it doesn't have to be about, oh, your dinner has to be perfect. Your, di- your dinner, your dinner for your family is not meant to taste like a great chef made it. It's about like, can you pay attention to what you're doing and, you know, try to enjoy the act of cooking for yourself or cooking for people you care about and know that it's not a competition and know that, you know, if you screw something up, well, that is also an opportunity to get better. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I've screwed up dishes that I've cooked at home, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, it's everybody makes mistakes on stuff like that and that, and that's perfectly normal and it's perfectly fine. But I liked what you said earlier, which resonated with me, which is, you know, remind yourself why you're cooking, what you're cooking and who it's for. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, that's why I got into cooking. I mean, I started to cook with my grandmother, Dorothy, a lot. And that's what, what I remember at a very young age was how much joy it brought her to Mm. serve us. And I remember, I remember vividly understanding that so few ingredients brought her so much joy. And I thought to myself, wow, that's really powerful, right? a very simple chicken and dumpling dish that she made or a sunbuckle cookie that she made for us gave her, gave her more joy than it gave us. And we were eating it. And, and that in itself, we never worried about the mistakes that she made in the kitchen because we were so happy to see her happy. And, and ultimately food is the, the food is the ultimate connector. Yeah. And boy, no one likes to eat dinner when you brought it to the table mad. I right. know that from experience. <laughs> well, True. thank don't, you so much, Jeff. This has been a really, really, really lovely way to spend an evening. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Gavin Kaysen is the chef owner of Spoon and Stable, Demi, Belcour Bakery, and Mara. His debut cookbook is called At Home. You can find his recipe for his family's favorite, spatchcock chicken with North African spices, sweet potato hash, and broccolini at SplendidTable.org. Thanks again to all the members of the Splendid Table Co-op for joining us on Zoom for this show. And thank you for listening. Have a great week. Go cook something. We'll talk to you soon. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shafford, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and the Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosado Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lubke, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to leave us a review. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. 